Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. The Drabblecast, episode 113. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, the science fiction convention Balticon is coming up, May 22nd, and old Norm will be there. If you're planning on going and want to meet up for a drink or sword fight, shoot us an email at drabblecast at yahoo.com and we'll let you in on the plans. It'll be good times. So, 100-word story time. This week's Drabble is called The Good Doctor and comes from Jake Webb, or Legestic Vantra Shell of Lob, from the Drabblecast forums, where we keep a public domain Drabble pool for people to share and comment on their 100-word stories. Jake is a 17-year-old high school student living in Hawaii, and he seems to have a real knack for Drabbles, and he's also lucky as hell because he lives in Hawaii. The doctor paced, laughing maniacally, as thunder boomed in the sky above. Torrential rain pelted into his inner sanctum. He didn't care. Disgruntled villagers with torches were storming up the hillside. He didn't care. Cackling, he flipped a massive switch. His machine roared to life harnessing the lightning from the sky above and pumping it onto the cold steel table in front of him. As electricity flowed into the cobbled-together mess of organs and limbs, the doctor couldn't help but smirk at the irony of it all. Mother had always said that he'd never learn how to make friends. Rolling your eyes while chuckling. The mark of a good drabble. Well, our feature story this week is called Charlie the Purple Giraffe Was Acting Strangely by David D. Levine. David's a science fiction and fantasy writer who's sold over 30 short stories so far, and he's won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story, the Writers of the Future Contest, James White Award, and Phobos Fiction Contest. He's the author of a story that we ran not too long ago called Babble Probe, which got almost unprecedented positive reactions on our discussion forums and elsewhere. And in my opinion, for whatever that's worth, this week's story is just as cool. Different, but cool. David lent his voice for the character of Charlie, so that makes it fun too. Anyways, without further ado, Charlie the Purple Giraffe Was Acting Strangely by David D. Levine. 
Jerry the Orange Squirrel was walking down the sidewalk one day when he saw some word balloons floating above the hedge beside him. It was the voice of his friend Charlie, the Purple Giraffe. A man has to have a proper garden, doesn't he? Charlie was saying. And what makes a proper garden? Proper plants. And what do you need for proper plants? After each question, Charlie seemed to be waiting for an answer, but no response was visible. You need proper dirt, Charlie continued. And what do you have to have for proper dirt? Intrigued, Jerry scampered to the top of the hedge and stared down. What he saw made the little lines of surprise come out of his head. You need proper worms. Bent double, Charlie was busily tying a Windsor knot around the neck of a common garden worm. Beside him, a large tin can, its ragged-edged lid tilting at a rakish angle, squirmed with hundreds of worms in tiny top hats, spats, and bustles. It wasn't the worms that surprised Jerry, though. Charlie did that sort of thing all the time. It was the fact that Charlie was speaking into thin air. Who are you talking to, Charlie? said Jerry. Charlie was so startled that his eyes momentarily jumped out of his head. But he quickly regained his composure. Uh, the worms? Worms don't have ears, Charlie. I was talking to you, Jerry. Yeah, you didn't even know I was here. Sure I did. I was just pretending I didn't. Uh-huh. Jerry's words dripped frost. One linen-clad worm raised a parasol against the drips. As a matter of fact, I was just about to invite you in for tea. Care to join me? Yeah, we can have a nice little chat. They walked from the yard into Charlie's cozy one-room bungalow. It was pink today, with cheerful curves to its walls and roof, and was surrounded by smiling purple flowers. The entire interior was wallpapered in blue and yellow stripes, which clashed with the green and black stripes of Charlie's suit. Charlie poured tea for the two of them, holding the tiny teapot delicately between white-gloved finger and thumb. A musical note came from the pot as he set it down. He seated himself and raised his cup, pinky raised, though he did not drink, for his arms were too short to reach his head. What brings you out on this fine morning? He asked. His words were sprinkled with rainbows and candy canes. Jerry sipped his tea for a moment. Charlie, you have to admit that you've been acting a little strange lately. Strange? Charlie's eyes darted to one side, then returned to Jerry. Jerry set down his cup. You've been talking to yourself. Me? Talk to myself? He slapped his knee and laughed, not very convincingly. Why should I talk to myself when you're so much more interesting than I am? I've seen you do it, like just now. I told you, I was talking to you. What about last week, when you were working on your car? I saw you from three blocks away. Every once in a while, you'd wave your wrench and pontificate. It was like you were trying to convince someone of something, but there was nobody there. I was, uh, rehearsing. I'm giving a speech to the Rotary Club next week. Jerry hopped up on the table. Charlie, there is no Rotary Club in this town. It's in, uh, another town. What other town? Charlie passed his cup from hand to hand. He stared fixedly at a point on the wall. It was as though he were staring out a window, but there wasn't even a painting there, just the wallpaper, which was now patterned in pink and white polka dots. His expression was grim, almost angry. Finally, he brought his head down to Jerry's level, cupped his glove to his mouth, and whispered. 
I wasn't talking to myself. Oh? Charlie peered theatrically from side to side, then leaned in even closer. I was talking to the readers. Jerry crossed his arms on his chest. There's nobody here by that name. It's not a name. It's a... It's what they do. Readers. People who read. Who read what? A change came over Charlie then, like a cloud passing in front of the sun. He placed his hands flat in his lap, straightened his neck, and took a deep breath. Us, he said at last. They read us. Yeah, I don't understand. Charlie stood up and began to pace, his hands tightly clenched behind his back. His strides were long, and the house was tiny. He could only take two or three steps in each direction before having to turn around. Jerry? He began, then paused. Look, do you ever ask yourself, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Sure, sometimes. Doesn't everyone? Charlie stopped pacing, turned suddenly, and leaned down to Jerry again. We make them laugh. His tone was deadly serious. Them? The readers. We were created to entertain them. Jerry waved his tiny paws in a broad gesture of negation. Whoa there, big guy. <laughs> Jerry the Squirrel ain't nobody's creation and nobody's petsy. I'm here for me. Sorry, Jerry, but it's the honest truth. We're just characters in a comic book. Jerry fixed Charlie with a hard, beady stare. Prove it. Charlie's eyes closed and his shoulders slumped. He turned away from Jerry. I can't. Then how do you know it's true? I've, I've always known, I think, in the back of my head somewhere. But then one day... He turned back to Jerry, and his eyes were two black pits of fear and despair. I just said goodbye to Hermione the Hedgehog. I turned to go back into my house, and then suddenly everything was black. I couldn't move. I couldn't see. I was squashed flat. But somehow I knew that all around me, piled above and below me like a huge stack of pancakes was everyone and everything I have ever cared about. They were all squashed flat too, but, but I was the only one who knew it. That went on for a moment that seemed like forever. And then I was right back in my house as though nothing had happened. A thought balloon appeared above Jerry's head. He's bonkers. I know it sounds crazy, but it was as real as anything. And ever since then, I know we're being read, and we're being laughed at. I get it, Jerry said with false cheer. When you talk to them, you're telling them jokes. No! Charlie's hands bunched into fists, and he pounded the air ineffectually. I'm trying to explain myself. Jerry scratched his head, and a few question marks came out. <laughs> well, you certainly aren't doing a very good job of it now. Well, for instance, last week when I was working on my car, I was just putting the engine back in for the third time and I was explaining to the readers that this was a very delicate operation and had to be performed with the utmost care. Not funny at all. Charlie, you were pounding it in place with a sledgehammer. That's pretty funny. And calling it a delicate operation just makes it funnier. Charlie stood stock still for a moment, his lip quivering. 
Then he collapsed into his chair, his purple neck arching high as he dropped his head into his hands. I know! He sobbed, big blue teardrops running down between his fingers. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try to be serious, it comes out hilarious. And I'm tired of him laughing at me. Jerry offered his handkerchief, and Charlie blew his nose in it with an immense orange honk. These readers, can you hear them? Can you see them? No. Then how do you know they're laughing at you? I just know. Same way I know they're there. And where are they exactly? Right now? Over there. Jerry followed Charlie's pointing finger, but there was nothing there but the green and white flowered wallpaper. At least it was prettier than the pink and white polka dots that had been there before. I don't see anything. Neither do I. But they're there. They're always there. Always? Well, most of the time. He lifted his head and tried to return the sodden handkerchief, but Jerry gestured to keep it. I don't think they watch anyone else. Uh, I mean, they're, they're watching you now because you're with me, and they might watch you for a while after you leave here, but eventually they'll come back to me. I'm the main character in their little comic book. Jerry's tail bristled. Why you? Why not me? I don't know. I wish I did. That's just the way it is, I guess. Jerry paced back and forth on the table for a time, thinking. Finally, he spoke. I think you ought to talk to Dr. Nasiris about this. Charlie shook his head, a slow, rueful motion. Okay, but I don't think it'll do any good. Dr. Nasiris's office walls were completely covered in diplomas from such institutions as the School of Aardvarks and What's Up With You. The doctor himself was a stout gray rhino, nearly as wide as he was tall, whose wire-rimmed glasses perched incongruously at the top of his head. He wore a white lab coat, and a small, round mirror was strapped to his forehead. He never used the mirror in any way. Hmm, he said, as he held his stethoscope to the side of Charlie's neck. And, hmm, again, as he stood on a stepladder to peer down Charlie's throat. And, hmm. Once more, as he held Charlie's lapel between two fingers and looked at his watch. Well, doctor, said Jerry when the exam was finished. What's wrong with them? Oh, yes, well, my examination has discovered no physical infirmities whatsoever. Superficially, he's as salubrious as an equine. What? asked Charlie. Yes, healthy as a horse explained the doctor. I told you. But he's seeing things, said Jerry. Yes, indeed. These phantasmagorical manifestations are most worrisome, the doctor muttered, puffing on his pipe. A few small pink bubbles emerged as he pondered. Yes, well, I recommend that we keep your friend under observation. How ironic, Charlie said to the wall, then returned his gaze to the doctor. I am not seeing things or hearing things. I just know things. Is that so bad? Jerry jumped up on the doctor's desk. Charlie, listen to me. I'm your friend, right? I've never steered you wrong. Of course not. 
Then get this through your thick purple skull. There are no readers. You are not the main character in anyone's comical book. You're just a person like anyone else, and you're here to muddle through your life the same as the rest of us. Nothing more. Yes, I'm afraid the veracity of your diminutive companion statement is incontrovertible, said the doctor, waving his pipe. These megalomaniacal misapprehensions must be immediately terminated. They jeopardize your physical integrity and the overall stability of the community. What? You're a danger to yourself and others. Charlie jumped out of his seat. I'm no danger to anyone. So what if I talk to myself? That doesn't mean I'm going to pick up a big mallet and start flattening people. Yes, well, solipsistic delusions are frequently merely the initial manifestation of a general insensitivity to the legitimacy, even the existence of external personalities. If allowed to go unchecked, these tendencies could escalate into antisocial or even injurious behavior. What? He thinks you might pick up a big mallet and start flattening people, said Jerry. Charlie stood with his feet planted wide and his fists clenched. The white fabric of his gloves was bunched and strained. He stared at the wall. You think this is funny, don't you? Nobody's making any jokes here, Charlie, said Jerry. We're serious. I wasn't talking to you. He turned around, pointed at a different spot on the wall. This has all been arranged for your amusement. Are you happy? Jerry and Dr. Noceris looked at each other. Charlie pulled out a big mallet from his pocket and began pounding on the wall. Are you laughing now, huh? Are you? The wham of the mallet on the wall was huge and black. Just let me get out there and I'll show you what comedy is all about. This situation necessitates immediate incarceration, said the doctor as he ran behind his desk. Ditto, said Jerry as he dived under a chair. The doctor pressed a button under the desk. No sound came out, but a few small lightning bolts appeared. Moments later, two enormous gorillas, their white coats stretched taut over bulging muscles, burst through the door. There was a swirl of motion, and when it cleared, Charlie was on the floor, trussed in a straitjacket. Don't let them put me away! Charlie cried. It's for your own good, said Jerry, and waved encouragingly as the gorillas hustled Charlie away. But as soon as they were gone, Jerry's shoulders slumped. What are you going to do, Doctor? Well, his prognosis is not encouraging. However, he will be the recipient of the most advanced experimental treatments modern technology has to offer. From his pocket, the doctor drew one end of a set of heavy jumper cables. Sparks flew from the sharp copper teeth as he touched them together, and a small, strange grin appeared on his face. Charlie's sad, desperate eyes peered through the slot in the metal door. You gotta get me out of here, Jerry. His word balloon squeezed through the slot like bubbles from a sinking ship. Hang in there, buddy. Dr. Noceris tells me that you're coming along nicely. 
He's been saying that for weeks. Charlie shook his head, bringing his blackened horns briefly into view. But I know the score. I'm not going to get out of here until I show some improvement. But since there's nothing wrong with me, I'm never going to get any better than I am now. Charlie, you must accept that you have a problem. It's the first step on the road to recovery. Charlie chuckled ruefully. I have a problem, all right. I've learned there are worse things than being laughed at. Nobody's laughing at you, Charlie. You need to understand that these readers are nothing more than a projection of your own feelings of self-doubt and inconsequentiality. That's just what the rhino told you to say. But you're right. Nobody's laughing at me. The readers aren't laughing at me, and that's the problem. I thought you didn't want them to laugh at you. I didn't. But since I've been here in this padded cell, tied up in this straitjacket all day long with nothing to do, Jerry, they're bored. Well, that's an improvement, isn't it? Maybe now they'll watch someone else instead. They've tried, but <laughs> no insult intended. None of you guys are as funny as I am. Jerry's tail bristled. So they're leaving. They're going away completely. And that scares me. You should be glad to be rid of them. Jerry fumed. Charlie's eyes closed for a moment. When they opened again, Jerry saw a bit of the old manic fervor. Listen, do you ever think about the nature of time? What? Time. How it passes from moment to moment. Haven't you ever noticed how some things change when you aren't looking at them? Like the wallpaper? Exactly. I believe that time is divided into moments or, or segments. Within each segment, we are alive and awake, but in between there are gaps. That's when things change. What does this have to do with anything? I think the readers live their lives in the gaps between our time segments. They live in our time too, somehow, I, I know, because they can see us, but in the gaps, they have the universe to themselves. Charlie, you're not making any sense. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm dead serious. And here's the important part. When the readers aren't watching us, we don't exist. Jerry shook his head and turned away. But after a moment's thought, he turned back. Okay, suppose I accept this theory of yours. Suppose there are gaps between moments. But time still feels continuous to us, see? He waved a paw rapidly back and forth. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter, as long as they keep coming back. But if too many of them get bored, if they all go away and don't come back, then the gap will just go on and on and will never exist again. It'll be the end of the world, Jerry, squashed flat in the dark forever. Charlie's eyes were desperate, sincere, pleading. You got to get me out of here. I'll joke, I'll pratfall, I'll do anything to keep the readers coming back, to keep us all alive. Please. Jerry closed his eyes, unable to bear his friend's gaze. There are no readers, Charlie. In the end, he was right. Yikes. Existential crisis. 
I love the idea of cartoon characters experiencing cognitive dissonance. It makes me somehow feel a little better about myself, like I'm not all alone in the world. Not that that really matters, because I guess, ultimately, human existence is meaningless. Uh, okay, deep breaths. You know what the moral of this story was? Keep laughing, people. Nietzsche said, we should call every truth false that is not accompanied by at least one laugh. And that's pretty much true most of the time. Or at least some of the time. Anyways, feedback. A couple weeks ago, we ran a story called The Alchemical Automaton Blues by Ian McHugh. This was a story about a golem. People like this one. Devorah said, haven't heard a good golem story since sitting on daddy's knee. The thing about this one was, if you substitute neighbor's dog for golem, it just seems like a basic neighbors are a pain and can be cruel story that had fantasy elements forced into it. I mean, did I miss something? If you're going to have a story about golems in it, shouldn't there be something golem-esque about its plight? All that said, I enjoyed it, as usual. People got in discussions about what is life, what is a soul, what are animals, and what are golems. Shilverbean said, I'm not an animal rights activist by any means, but I think you should be nice to animals. Growing up, we had a neighbor with a tiny yard and a giant Great Dane. It never seemed happy, always whimpering and sad. It took it on walks, for sure, but I don't think that was enough. Of course, a golem isn't an animal. It's a created thing. But I think the same concept applies because it was created with emotions. If they got an emotionless golem, all problems solved. Then it would meet everyone's needs, including its own. While sad, a very good story indeed, and very thought-provoking. Strawman kind of disagreed, saying, I'm sorry, but I find the idea of creating a thing and giving it a single human characteristic, that of emotional neediness, simply skeeves me to no end. I would assume that if you could insert an animating charm of choice, it would be nobler to create a golem using the golden rule, rather than one that is a constant reminder of our neighbor's failure to live up to it, and the resulting temptation for us to judge our neighbor. We love your feedback, and we're even growing somewhat fond of you. You should join our discussion forums and say hello. We're amassing a pretty extensive archive of bizarre news stories, links, and videos in the Drabble News section. And I gotta say, a recent finding and post by Phenopath, entitled Yet Another Parasitic Wasp, will blow your freaking mind. It's a video involving parasites, viruses, and caterpillars. And seriously, I have never seen anything from nature that is this complex, amazing, and utterly horrific. That's all I'll say. I want to rope in new friends to the forums. Speaking of friends, find us on Twitter at The Drabblecast for occasional episode teasers, sophomoric exchanges by editors, and our weekly 100-character TwitFic contest, which we publish every Wednesday. You can submit 100-character TwitFic stories either on our section in our forums or at drabblecast at yahoo.com. Congrats to this week's winner, Michael Young, for his story, The Missing, which we just posted out. Well, hey, that's it for this week. If you like our show, you should consider supporting us. You can either do so once, or you can subscribe for $5 a month through a link on our website at www.drabblecast.org. We use listener support to pay our authors and keep doing this every week. So yeah, it's kind of a big deal. We use a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it, you can't sell it without our permission, but you can share it all you freaking like. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that you have to have proper worms. The evening saunters to closing. 
The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago, this place was loaded. And noise filled the room. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.